All right, so tonight I'm talking about predestined. Hey, boy. And my title is To What? So, yeah, we're in Book of Romans, Grace and Peace to You. And this is Lesson 57. Um, predestination. It's one of those uh, kind of hot topics among some people. And um, as I said in my notes here, uh, it has divided people and still does. So let's read uh, these verses. I'm going to start in verse 28 there at the top of your page. Romans 8, verse 28. And he says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. So putting that back in its context, as we talked last week, for those who uh, love God, those who are called according to his purpose, it's the same people. And it's because God is working all things together. And we, I spent quite a bit of time on that in our session last week. Things don't just work out. And if we're waiting for things to work out, they won't. Separately, this verse is not for every person in the world. It's for those who love God. Those who are called according to his purpose. The saints, as we would read up in the verse just above this. Holy Spirit makes intercession for the saints. And because of that, we know that all things are working together. God is working all these things together for our good. And then we go on down as we continue. For all those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now those, those things in verse uh, 30, for the most part, will come up in our lesson next week as we talk about the completeness of our salvation, the assurance of salvation. So, so many believers don't have that. They don't know that this is all done. From the time that you believe in Jesus Christ, it's accomplished. But things for next week. Don't go there yet. All right. But tonight we want to talk about this, this word that pops up here in the midst of this. Those are called according to his purpose in verse 28, but then it goes, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. So we got two words right there that brings some kind of confusion and a lot of division among people. Those who are predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So when we talk about this idea of predestination, God's foreknowledge, that's going to be a large part of the teaching from Romans chapters 9 through chapter 11. So some of that we will come back through as we look at those examples, because in Romans 9 through 11, Paul goes back to the Old Testament to establish how these principles work. And there are some things in there that many people uh, find confusing, but you've got to read things properly. And so that's why in my notes here tonight, I'm starting with some preliminary issues. Now, I'm not trying to get 
doctrinally deep. I'm not trying to get into all kinds of theological um, principles here, but we've got to have a grasp of some of these things. And so here are some things that we've got to understand. We, we look into this passage of Scripture, and it's one thing to have the Bible translated. All right? That means what we have in English is as close as we can get to Greek. Now, sometimes I spend time talking about Greek words, or even going to tonight. Sometimes you have to talk a little bit about sentence structure, which again we'll be doing tonight. Because there's things that can't be expressed. How many of you speak a foreign language fairly well? Let's go ahead. Let me see your hands. I speak a foreign language. Spanish. Sarcasm. No, doesn't work. That's a, that's a natural language among many people here. Yeah. So, um, but people that would speak French or Russian or uh, Dutch... Evie's not here, but she speaks Dutch. Uh, you would realize that not everything can be translated exactly. You can say it, but it's not exactly the same. So sometimes you have to add a little bit more to it to help the people understand. I've got a uh, series of, of commentaries that I use. Uh, it's from the Bible uh, Society, the United Bible Society. And their commentaries are meant to help people translating into any language. So they, they come back from the Greek basic, but then they say, now you may have to say this like this, uh, depending on the subject, depending on where people understand. It has to be said in a different way. Uh, for example, when I was teaching in China, I use a lot of language studies, a lot of verbs. Well, in Chinese, you can't do that. Because if I try to talk about past tense or future tense in Chinese, it's meaningless. They have different ways of understanding that. And so they have future and they have past, but you've got to say it all together different. And so it's not just, you know, putting an ED on the end of a word or an ING, you know, as it's in future. So you've got to sometimes work within the language. But that's all part of translation, Interpretation, which is what we're going to look at here for just a few minutes, interpretation is what you think the verse is saying. All right? So what, how you're going to present what's in that verse. Now, some verses are very clear. And, you know, Jesus wept. All right, there we go. Pretty clear. Though interpretation... Well, he didn't really weep. He was just kind of, oh, please, get out of here. All right, so anyway, um, the, the idea of interpretation includes adding what you believe, what you've studied to the verse to help people understand it, or could I say to preach it? All right, so... Uh, one line we used to get, you know, in school was, you know, is, does the Bible say that or are you just preaching? So, yeah. So there's a lot of preaching that goes on sometimes, whether even in our own personal language, where we are roughly interpreting a verse to 
another phrase that we use in college and studies is proof texting. We use a verse to prove what we're wanting to say. The verse might not say that at all, but by golly, we're using it. And one of my favorite illustrations, I've used this before, is in the book of Amos, in chapter 9, it talks about God will give you cleanness of teeth. Cleanness of teeth. So I'm not going to ask tonight because I don't want to inflict this on anybody. But, you know, if you've got dental issues, believing for cleanness of teeth would be a good thing, right? So God will give you cleanness of teeth. But when you read the passage, read it. All you, all you do is read it. Just go back to the book of Amos and read the context. What it means is God's going to take all the food out of your mouth and you're going to starve. That's, that's cleanness of teeth. So it's a, it's, a, it's a verse of judgment, not a verse of blessing. But by golly, we're going to use it for clean teeth. Because those words are in there. And so... Um, and so that's, that's what I mean by proof texting. We're not really saying what's in the verse. We're using the verse to say what we want to say. And that is sometimes called preaching. It's not true preaching, but that's what it's used for. In your notes there, I got a couple different words here. Interpretation is reading out. The Greek word is exegesis. All right, exegesis, E-X-E-G-E-S-I-S. E-X-E-G-E-S-I-S, exegesis, means out, X, to read, to read out. And so you've got something here, and I'm reading out of what's written, what is there? All right, so exegesis, it's the root for what people call exegetical preaching, exegetical teaching. Um, you listen to someone like Charles Stanley. Uh, John MacArthur, Bob Yandian, uh, they are exegetical preachers. Much of their teaching is just verse by verse what's there, and that's what they're teaching. Now, that doesn't mean they didn't also teach topically, because if, if they teach on family, you can't teach that in a sense exegetically, because you've got to skip all around the scriptures, and you want to teach on the end times, you've got to skip all around the scriptures, so that's, that's topical. But exegetical is a primary way of teaching. And um, it's also sometimes referred to as expository. Right? So we're exposing what's in the scripture, expository preaching. And exegetical teaching, as I write there in your notes, involves language study. So if you're going to teach exegetically, you've got to uh, look at what the language says. Sometimes, again... One word doesn't translate exactly to another word in English. Uh, you sometimes need to talk about the background or the situation of the writing. I've been teaching on my Sunday morning sessions uh, through Old Testament prophecies concerning the gospel. And so you can't teach some of Isaiah's prophecy without also bringing in some of the history and sometimes the geography. And so you're looking at what was Isaiah saying, and who was he saying it to? If you're going to teach Paul, you've got to recognize what's, who's he talking to? What's he talking about? Here's one. Is he answering questions? And many of Paul's letters are just answers to questions. We don't have the questions. We got the answer. So it's like biblical jeopardy. <laughs> All right? So here's what the thing is. What, what's the question? 
And so sometimes in Paul's writing, that's, you have to go back and do that. Who's, what's the situation? What did he teach them before? If you got First and Second Thess- uh, Thessalonians or First and Second Corinthians, hey, what did he teach them before? But now he's coming back and referring to. So I told you. Now he's coming back and saying something again. So all of those things go into what we call exegetical teaching. Uh, the author's intended purpose. What? What? Why is he saying this? Well, we got four gospels: Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But they're different. Although I know that a lot of the miracles of Jesus are repeated in Matthew and Luke and Mark, and so they say, well, they all copied from the same source. No, Jesus did that, and four people saw him. Mark is saying what Peter said, Matthew was there, and Luke is recording what he learned from eyewitnesses. And guess what? They all agree. And so they, they all present that same story. But then you come to John, And many of the miracles in John are not repeated in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In fact, John teaches things Jesus did, miracles he did in Jerusalem, that you you wouldn't even know that Jesus had been in Jerusalem if you didn't read the Gospel of John. Because Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't even mention it. And so, you know, why was John teaching this? Because he was answering a problem. 30 years after Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written, John wrote his gospel to people who were caught up in super spirituality called Gnosticism. And so he is redefining who the Christ was and what he did. So, again, the author's intended purpose, and especially the context in the passage. You can't just teach a sentence. And unfortunately, sometimes we just teach phrases instead of what's the context? What's, what's in the sentence? What's in the paragraph? What's in that chapter? What's in that book? So it's important to look at these things. Uh, point number two, the, the more scripture we know, the more understanding we gain from a given passage. So my illustration here, how many love reading the book of Leviticus? Oh, yeah. Very few. Yeah, I know. But if you haven't read the book of Leviticus, much of the book of Hebrews will not make sense. Because there's things back in Exodus and Leviticus that if you don't understand, Hebrews doesn't make any sense. Because he's writing to people who knew Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. <laughs> and they knew all those things, and you don't. And so you're trying to understand Hebrews without having a foundation in some of those things that are back there. So again, same principle. You can study the Psalms, but when you find a commentary or someone who helps you put that Psalm back into the history of David or Hezekiah or whoever, whoever else wrote the Psalm, it suddenly makes a whole lot more sense. It's like, wow, I, I see how and why David was saying what he was saying. Because David didn't write outside of history, things were happening. And his psalms sometimes reflect that, but it takes study to figure out how this psalm fits back here. And so those things are all important. Point number three, a line of faith or doctrine. Um, We could call that a point of view, 
or a doctrinal slant or however you want to identify it uh, can limit the reader in understanding a passage or in coloring it to their own interpretation. All right. Wading into the shallow, maybe falling into the deep. I was asked one time, again, by some ministers in China, was I a Protestant? Yes. But, how many of there's a lot of flavors of Protestants? Yeah. You've been to Brahms? Yeah, you've got lots of flavors, right? So, um, and, and what, what is it? Baskin Robbins has, has what? 39, 39, 32, 30. Anyway, a bunch of flavors. There's lots of flavors. Well, there's lots of flavors of Protestantism. Two of the big ones are called Calvinism, and you don't have to, you don't have to worry about this, but Calvinism and Arminianism, after John Calvin and Joseph Arminius. But then you got those pesky Pentecostals. And it's like they bubble up kind of out of nowhere. And where do you fit them? And so you got this whole idea of is who's right and who's wrong, which camp am I in? And depending sometimes on how, how much you commit yourself or how much you've been trained in one camp, you may totally write off the other camp. So, what kind of Protestant are you? Are you Calvinist? Yes. Are you Arminian? Yes. Are you Pentecostal? Yes. So I'm a Calvinist. A, a, okay, here's, here's the word I came up with this morning. I'm a Neo-Calvin, Arminia, Costal. Because <laughs> it all fits together. I, I, I don't, I, I, I'm not just Calvinist. There's things in Calvin I don't follow. Because one man cannot interpret the entire Bible, and then everybody has to follow his interpretation. In the eight, in the, I think it was within eight years of Calvin's coming to salvation, believing the gospel of salvation, he wrote 23 volumes called The Institutes of Theology. 23 volumes. Now, obviously, those days he didn't have a lot else to do. I don't know what he was doing. But it was like, this is everything that everybody should ever believe. Mm. Institutes of religion, I think that's what it's called. But it's like, yeah, but some of the things you wrote in there, I don't agree with. In fact, by the time he got done, he disagreed with himself. And some of the things that, that hardline Calvinists say, Calvin didn't say at all. So there are things that people have put in because this is where they've been trained. Now, classically, I was trained Baptist. 
But then I got pulled into Pentecostalism and learned some things through the assemblies and the, quote, holiness side. And then I got more spread out into, wow, just what the Bible says. So there's things that Calvin's, I believe, there's things that I don't. And one of the issues is this thing called predestination and sovereignty. Because to hardline Calvinists, it's called sovereign election. Or the big crux in their theology is limited atonement. Jesus did not die for everyone. He only died for those that God was choosing to be saved. Those who God did not choose to be saved, he did not die for at all. That is a main stay. It's like Calvinism is represented by five points. T-U-L-I-P, tulip. And limited atonement is the big L in the middle. And so the things that there's, I, I believe in the T of tulip, total depravity. I believe in that. I believe in unmerited favor. I believe in that. that. That's God's grace. I didn't deserve this. What I have is I didn't deserve. But they start to read into that. If it's unmerited, then how did I get it? Well, God assigned it to me. And that I don't believe. And that's where we cross with what's called sovereign election and those things. So then I fall back over to, they'd say I've fallen off to the, Cal to the Arminian side. But I don't believe in the Arminian side that I can lose my salvation every time I sin and I have to get born again because if I have sin in my life then obviously I'm not saved and so every sin means you have to again be resaved I don't believe that so I can't side with either camp you know why because both camps are interpretations I want to know what does the scripture say I want to come back to find out what does the scripture say. I'm not going to follow a certain camp. And then you got the Pentecostals rising up. What are we going to do with them? Well, most of the Armenians, they just didn't pay attention to them. The Calvinists came up with a new theology that they developed in the early 1800s called cessationism, which means the gifts ended when the final apostle died. And so all of the gifts ceased basically at the end of the first century. And so there were no more gifts. The problem is their great hero, Calvin, didn't believe that. So now what are we going to do? If you had a Pentecostal experience, how many of you have had a Pentecostal experience? Okay, you can't take that away from me. It's real because it's real. <laughs> so it's real because it's real. So how do we put all this back together? This is where our camps, our theological bend or intent crosses with biblical interpretation. We interpret along the lines of what we believe. And so if you do not believe in, quote, Pentecostalism, then when you read certain verses, you're going to write them off. Or you're going to reinterpret them a certain way. And so this is where we come down to. 
my point comes back to what does the Bible say? Now that, I'm not setting myself up as the final authority either because I read from both camps. I've told you in my preparation for uh, teaching this series on Romans, I have probably now read 29 different commentaries from all kinds of different camps. A paragraph here I agree with, sometimes it's a sentence that I agree with. And the rest of his point I don't agree with because I can't see it in the rest of Scripture. I think it's colored by his doctrinal interpretation. And so it's one of those things where you have to balance these things out. Now, the early church, it was kind of easy because he had an apostle to straighten everything out. We don't have those apostles that will straighten everything out. I've heard some people say, well, if, if, if you're a teacher and you're not teaching what the apostle gave you, whoever your apostle over you is, then you have no authority. And so, I, I'm sorry, can't see that, can't see that at all. Apostles today do not have the authority to establish scripture. The Bible is true, whether the apostle says it or not. My favorite sign was down on Garnett a number of years ago, a little Episcopal church where the bishop of the Episcopal church in England had established a certain point of view concerning Jesus that Jesus may or may not have been real. He may or may not have risen from the dead. We can, it's okay to believe it, but did he really, doesn't really matter. So this guy put on this sign out in front of his church, this bishop, or the pastor at this little church, he put on this sign, just because the bishop says it's true, doesn't mean it's in the Bible. And it wasn't long before they were no longer a part of that denomination. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's it, people can establish something, but that doesn't make it true. And the reason I give you a lot of notes and the reason I spend a lot of time going through a verse and explaining the verse is because I want you to be able to see it for yourself and, and to be able to understand that, you know, th this is really in this passage. Biblical exegesis requires, in a sense, an open mind, setting aside what I think to allow what the Scripture says. Now, God's word is true. I can put down there in the last point, God has seen to it that the basis of our faith has been recorded. This book is the basis of our faith. Amen. It's been recorded for us. Doesn't matter that it wasn't available to believers in the first, second, third, even up to the sixth, 18th, 8th century. It wasn't available to people until the 15th century when people could actually have a Bible, if they could have a Bible written in their language, but it doesn't matter that it wasn't available, it was there. And those who were interpreting the scriptures to the masses are accountable for what they taught. And God is the one who answers that accountability, not me. But we have this book, it's our, it's our authority. And so 3,000 years span that, that this book was written from the time of Moses up through the time of the apostles, over 3,000 years of history. And not one letter contradicted or 
denied another letter or another author's writing. That's pretty amazing. And 40 different authors. So what we need to do is, as Paul said, 2 Timothy 2.15, study to show yourself approved. Now it goes on, that's not all it says. Show yourself approved unto God. I'm not, I'm not approved unto you, I'm approved unto God. What if people don't believe you? Am I approved unto God? Am I teaching what he gave me to teach? Am I teaching the truth as it's revealed? Now, several of the important issues that we're going to be looking at are uh, going to be answered over this period into chapter, uh, through chapter 11. But in verses 8 through 30, there's a couple points in here, some things that we have to define. So go to your page 2. And uh, we talk about troublesome terms because there are some things that we're going to run into that we've got to deal with. Again, Romans 8, 28 and 29, top of your page too. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So the first point we want to see is, as I've already said, this verse is not for every person on the face of the earth. This verse is for people who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. That's who Paul is writing to. Those who love God, those who are called, up in verse 27, the saints. And so this is something that Paul has established. And those who are called, this is not many are called but few are chosen. This is not that verse. This is God's personal call, direct call to you to believe. Uh, it's echoed in Romans 1.6, 1.7, and Romans 9.11 that you are the ones God has called to salvation. Now, this doesn't mean that everybody can't be called. Everybody can be, but that's not the point of this verse. The point of this verse is to those who have received that personal call to salvation. You got saved not by your choice, but by His. But so did everybody else. And all the people that have refused salvation... It's their choice to refuse, not God's. So it's only the called are only those who have accepted that call. And we accept it by faith. And this effective call, number one, convinces us of our sin and misery. Somewhere along the line, you realized you needed to be saved. You realized your sin, you realized whatever something was missing, you couldn't answer it, you didn't understand it, but something was wrong and it needed to be fixed and you felt separation from God and you needed help. And so you responded to that call. And this call includes the convincing of our sin, then also opening our minds in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. So God gives us this opening of our mind. When we realize our need, then God begins to work by His Spirit. 
And so when we read in the book of Acts, we read different accounts, how God opened their hearts or God opened their minds. And so there is something that takes place. And you can see it sometimes. I, I still stand amazed when I watch evangelists who have this gift of using a few words and bringing masses to salvation. I, I wish I could do that. I just, I don't know, I don't know how, I, that is not my gift, but I stand amazed, and I usually end up in tears, and I see these masses of people, this guy just said a few words, and suddenly these people's minds are open, and you see people flocking down, or raising hands, or standing to their feet, and it's, it's overwhelming, and there's a gift in that, but that all comes with the call. And evangelists have a gift of delivering that and bringing forth that kind of response from people. And then it is God who works, first of all, in convincing us of our sin. He opens our minds in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, and then he enables us to accept the message of Jesus. God, God is doing all of that in us. It's not you getting saved. It's God saving you. It's him doing the work. His spirit is working on the inside. You just accepted this opening. By grace, you're saved through faith, and that's not of yourself. In other words, the faith is not of yourself. You didn't come up with the faith. You didn't establish the faith. God has gifted you with this openness Convincing you of your need, opening your mind, and enabling you to accept this gospel of Jesus Christ. And it can take place in an instant, or it can take place over days. Where people wrestle and fight. Now, how many of you had an instantaneous acceptance of the Lord? How many of you wrestled for a time? over the salvation so and it can and it's still it's still the work of god he's still doing that in us and so different people respond in different ways all right so our points here that in all of this here's some things that we need to consider sovereignty foreknowledge predestination and choice so that's where i'm going see how far i get tonight sovereignty now, although this word does not occur in the passage, it sits over everything that's here, from verse 28 all the way to the end of verse 39 in this chapter, God's sovereignty. Sovereignty simply means absolute rule. Non-conferred authority over all things. Non-conferred means nobody gave it to him. That's non-conferred. God wasn't elected. He didn't get approved to rule over all things. He just is over all things. Well, he's over all things because he conquered them. No, he was over them before he conquered them. God is absolute, sovereign. Now, this sovereign lordship... Another way that this could be translated is simply lordship, supreme lordship. This supreme lordship does not rule every issue in your life. 
Because God in His sovereignty has released certain authorities to you. And so, though God is sovereign, all right, He doesn't control everything. He does control the outcome of all those things. So you can have a choice to follow God or reject Him. That's your choice. But God controls the outcome of that. You don't. You can't choose to reject God and still have eternal life. You don't have that choice. You're not, that's, that's out of your realm of authority, right? So God allows certain realms in our life. Though he rules, he doesn't control. Now, then somebody's going to come back and say, yeah, but God does control. Yes, he does control in the sense, but he's not making every choice for you. And so he's not making the choices. He's not determining what you are going to do at this point or that. You make that choice. The Bible is full of that from the very first chapter when Adam is created all the way to the end of the book of Revelation. You have a place in deciding your eternity. You have a place in determining what you're going to do. Do you get up every day and do only what God has controlled you to do? Or you do what you've chosen to do and sometimes find out that you were uh, not doing what God wanted you to do? Did you ever get one of those kind of warnings? Yeah. It's like, I didn't tell you to do this. Oh. Huh. But I want to. If God doesn't want you to, but you want to, can you still do it? Sure you can. That's because God doesn't control everything. Now, are there certain outcomes that are going to take place if you make that choice to go against what God said? Certainly there are. Now, please understand that in this issue of sovereignty, we're not talking about your salvation. We're talking about sovereign over all the things of your life. Salvation is an aspect of this. But nowhere does it say that God in his sovereignty chooses who will be saved and who will not. That's what extreme Calvinists, hard-line Calvinists call sovereign election. And it's only that God only chooses those whom he has determined to be saved not determine who will be saved, but he determines who will be saved. And if you are not in that group, you can't be saved. That's what they mean by limited atonement. Jesus did not die for everyone. He only died for those that God was going to choose. If you're not in that group, you can't be saved even if you want to. In fact, you won't even want to. And so this is their whole point. You can't have faith. Because God hasn't given you the, the aspect to have faith. So that is what they mean by limited atonement. That is not what this passage is about. It's not even in here. This is about those whom God has called, those who are called according to his purpose, those whom God has foreknown, he predestined. So in 
talking about this subject of sovereignty, I put this little phrase in here, uh, kind of my line. It's my bat, my ball, my grass, my dirt, my rules. That's the way it is with God. He owns everything. He created everything. And if he establishes a rule, then he's established the rule. We don't like the rule. You can't change the outcome. You don't have to like the rule. Adam didn't have to like the tree of life over the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So he didn't. He wasn't, he wasn't destined to the tree of life, neither was he destined to the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It was his choice. Eve gave to him the fruit. He took it. He ate it. And they fell. It was Adam's choice, not his destiny. So it was that all of that from the time of Adam down has come to us. I put these two passages in here because these speak of this idea of God's sovereign rule over all things. First Chronicles 29 verse 11 says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. David said that. Did David ever violate God's sovereign rule? Yeah. And what? Did he find consequences? But did he find forgiveness? Why? Because that's in God's sovereign rule too. Repentance that leads to forgiveness. Psalm 103, verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Then why are there so many bad people in the earth? <laughs> if his kingdom is over all and God is ruling over all, why are there all these bad people? Because that's their choice. And there are consequences. Right, we'll talk a little bit more about that at the end of our session. Okay, so as I say down here, his rule does not control every decision, every action. But in his rule, God has established this. Choice, submission, obedience, faith, even repentance. So, within God's sovereignty, there is choice. There's submission to what God has said. There's obedience to following what God has said. There is faith within this sovereign rule of God. And there is what? Repentance. So that when we have violated what God has established, we can come back. We are not forever lost. And so in this area of this promise leads us to these things. God has determined that this is to be the Outcome of mankind's relationship to him all until the great white throne. After that, it's all done. But up until then, choice is there. It is acceptance by faith, 
or rejection through unbelief. We accept God's rule. We accept his words. We accept his principles. We accept the things that he has done. How? By faith. Or we reject them by unbelief. I don't believe that. Adam did not believe. Eve took the fruit. She ate it. She didn't die. Maybe God was wrong. Maybe what he said wasn't true. So Adam took it. He ate the fruit. And everyone died. Why? Because God did say what he said. And he meant what he said. There were consequences. So the outcome of these decisions fits within all of this principle. They determine one thing. Heaven or eternal hell. Now, not every choice is heaven or hell. Thank God. Right? Although some Puritan type believers have, you know, come to that. You know, if you got your hair's too long, you cut your hair. You didn't do this. You know, you didn't do that. Um, going to hell. Everything you did wrong was you're going to hell. You know, but that's not true, right? Because not everything is heaven or hell. But there is heaven or hell <laughs> and so it is there so the next thing we come to then is foreknowledge in God's sovereign rule his absolute rule God knows but this passage is not talking about God's foreknowledge of all kinds of things he's talking about his foreknowledge of you for those those whom he foreknew he didn't say for that which he foreknew does God know everything yeah. yeah because God lives outside of time and this is mind-bending but it's the truth for God there is neither present nor future nor past Amen. all things are present now God is everywhere present that means in time but God uses time in a relationship to us because we are bound by time and so in God's foreknowledge, this foreknowledge that he's speaking here is his foreknowledge of you. Of you. For those whom he foreknew. He predestined. We'll come to that. And those he predestined, he called. And those he called, he justified. How many of you have been justified? Made righteous. By God's choice or by yours? Faith. By faith, we are saved by grace through faith, not by choice. Never says we're saved by God's choice. We're saved by faith. The righteous shall live by God's choice. No, the righteous shall live by faith. So faith is your decision to believe what God has said. And so this idea of foreknowledge is about what God knows about you. God foreknew those, those whom he foreknew. All right, so this is about individuals. But doesn't God know all the people in the earth? Doesn't God know everybody? Whoever existed, whoever will exist? That's not what this verse is about. Amos chapter 3 verse 2 says, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. What? God speaking to Israel, you only have I known. I mean, God didn't know the Egyptians? Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
He didn't, he didn't know the Assyrians? He didn't know the people on the other side of the earth? You only have I known. What does that mean? His knowing is a relationship. It's a really, you only have I known. Hosea chapter, uh, well, I forgot the chapter. Anyway, somewhere in Hosea, verse 13, maybe it's 1-3. Uh, it was I who knew you in the wilderness. Who knew them in the wilderness? God did. And it's not about God knowing everyone. That's, he does. But these are compared to here. Listen to Paul's language. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 3 says, If one loves God, didn't we just read that? For those who love God. Paul said, 1 Corinthians 8, 3, If one loves God, one is known by him. Galatians chapter 4, verse 9 says, You have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God. It's, it's the only way that you can know God is because he knows you. He has brought himself into relationship with you. You didn't find God. He found you. And he called you. Right? So this idea of foreknowledge means God knows these things beforehand. He knows beforehand the ones who will believe. And he knows, listen, the choice they will make. But this verse is about those who have made that choice. He knew you beforehand and he knew the choice you would make to receive him. But he doesn't control the choice. He doesn't control the outcome. So he didn't decide to save you. You decided to receive what he has given to you. What God revealed to you. Top of your next page says he, he knows every choice they make and he has a plan for that. If it's wrong, his plan is to lead them back to him through repentance. If God knew you, foreknew those whom he would then call, right? So God foreknew you. Did you make a choice for God the first time you ever heard the message? Did you re wrestle with it? Some people, how many got saved as a child in Sunday school somewhere? God bless you. How many got saved later in life? <laughs> yeah. We had, we had a man in, in Rhema. My, actually, he was a member of Sheridan Christian Center before I even started teaching at Rhema. He'd been Jehovah Witness all of his life. And at the age of 63, he heard the gospel and got saved. Later on, he came to Rhema. He wrote a book. Went around and taught different places. He's with the Lord now. But you know what? God's not done. God's not done. And so, people can get saved late in life. And just because we make wrong choices, even after we get saved, God's still there to bring us back. I got this, I was thinking about this, and I got this little illustration. It's, it's kind of weak, but it's the best I could come up with at the moment. It's not a maze. You know, the problem with a maze is there's only one right choice. 
Every place you come to for a choice, there's only one that's right. If you make the wrong choice, you're dead-ended. And you can make a right choice and a right choice and a right choice and a right choice and a wrong choice, and you're dead-ended. And you're almost all the way to the end, and you make a wrong choice, and you're dead-ended. Right? So the problem with a maze is there is no option. You don't have any real choice. There's only one outcome. It's more like a chess game where God is the great master chess player. Now, I know, please don't stretch this, you know, and if you're a chess player, don't, you know. But every move that you make is countered by God. I can make this move, but God's going to counter it. He's going to get me to where he wants me to be, and that's to checkmate. He's going to force me to a place of checkmate where I can either receive him or find his blessing or find my life, you know, secure in him, whatever. God is going to make all of the moves. And it doesn't matter that I am making a new move. God's got an answer. You know, I, th- I think of, you know, it's, it's not like there's one path to get you there. It's like the roots of a tree that spread out under the ground. But yet, God redirects them all to one central place. And that is God bringing us in all these different choices I made some wrong choices in my life, some I've told you about, some you'll never hear about, some I don't even know. But God brought me here. So we have this pattern, and we see it through Scripture. Adam, Adam made his own choice. Did he have to? No. Those in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11... What's the, what's the recurring phrase throughout Hebrews chapter 11? What is it? By faith. By faith. By faith. By faith. Not by choice. Not by direction. Not by command. But by faith. Yeah, God issued some commands, but by faith they believed. God gave them some opportunities, but by faith they took those opportunities. By faith. Saul of Tarsus. I thought of this. Paul said in uh, Galatians chapter 1, verse 15, But when he who had set me apart before I was born, who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Paul said, God chose me from the time I was born. I was chosen. But then he was persecuting Christians. What's that? God ordained that? Did God set that and it was that God's purpose for Saul? No. No. It was his choice. But then finally, Jesus appeared to him and it was, receive me or die. It's your choice. <laughs> you know, I, hopefully I would make the right choice. And so we have these opportunities. This is God preserving things. I look back at my life. And I see how God preserved me through some things so that I could find the place that God wanted me to be. He preserved me through my high school years, my years of rebellion. He preserved me through the military. He preserved me through the time that I was in the service until I could open my heart to believe. 
It was God's work. And I, I didn't know his hand was directing those things. I didn't know what God was rescuing me from. But finally, I came to a place where I was given an opportunity. Had I not received that opportunity, would that have sealed it? Only if I died. Because if I didn't die, there'd be other opportunities. I don't know where my life would have been had it not been at that point. Jen and I got saved together. July 22nd, 1972. But... Had I not made that choice, doesn't mean that there had not been another, another opportunity, because God would pursue. <clears throat> so then we look back at this and we see that God has foreknown those, those whom he foreknew, he predestined. And I didn't get to that. So you are predestined to hear the rest of this lesson next week. Perfect example. So my lesson is already predestined for the next week. I was planning on getting through this. I didn't. Sorry. But what I want us to have is this assurance that, yes, God is sovereign. But in his sovereignty, he has made opportunities God has established that those who believe in Jesus Christ will be saved. That's his sovereignty. He has determined that those who do not believe will face eternal hell. That's his sovereign choice. He didn't choose who, but he knows who. See that? He didn't choose them, but he knows them. And for those he knows... He's made a plan for your life, and that's what we get to next week. Father, we thank you.